This is an encore edition of The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Julie returns live next week with a brand new show. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk AM 1150. A beautiful day to take your dog for a walk today. Wouldn't you say so, Eric? Good point. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, it was kind of cloudy and, uh, you know, cool. And then you walked into the studio and the sun came out and I said, this is fantastic because <laughs> now we can say our signature catchphrase. That's right. It's a beautiful day to take your dog for a walk with no trace of irony whatsoever. That's right. It's absolutely perfect out there now. It is. Please do take your dog for a walk and even go somewhere new. Give him some new sense. Oh, it's more fun for you and for the dog. No. Um, well, I have a great, uh, great show today. Um, the Sparks Conference is coming around again. Uh, second annual Sparks International Conference. Uh, if you are new to the show since last summer, um, Sparks is the acronym for the Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science, which means it's a gathering of uh, world-renowned scientists in the field of, um, I guess, sort of simply put, uh, how dogs think. Um, cognition, um, how dogs and wolves um, differ from each other, how they differ in their interactions with people, how do dogs problem solve, learn, um, all sorts of different topics. It was um, so the um, first Sparks conference last year actually happened in Redmond. Um, so I was like super, super excited that it was right in our neighborhood. And right in our backyard. Yeah. So I got to attend and um, it was awesome and um, it was just really well done. And um, so leading up to the conference last year, I interviewed several of the scientists who were presenting that year and mm -hmm. I'm um, doing a bit of that again this year. And so um, today we'll be talking with Dr. Monique Udell um, who's with uh, Oregon State University, and she's got a lot of great work um, that she's doing out of there. And so we're going to get into um, her work. Before we do, though... By the way, go fighting beavers. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you have an OSU connection, Eric? I had a friend that went to OSU, okay. so I, All right. I know okay. it's the beavers. Now, if you want to learn more about Sparks, the website is caninescience.info. This year's... Um, conference is June 20th through the 22nd, and it's in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, beautiful place to go visit if you want to go and attend in person. And if you can't go and attend in person, you can um, watch it streaming live. Um, there's lots of other ways to access the conference. Um, and you can, you know, get a membership through Sparks, and they have different levels of membership and stuff. So all that information is on caninescience.info. So we have on our line from Oregon State University, Dr. Monique Udell. Welcome to the dog show. Hi, Julie. Thank Hi. you for having me. Yes, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for your time. And um, so lots to talk about. First of all, um, tell us about, you know, the work that you do um, and your kind of focus in, in your field of work and what you what you study. So I study a range of animal behavior, animal cognition, and human-animal interaction topics. Um, most of my work right now that involves dogs is looking at things like 
um, what kind of attachments do dogs form to their owners or if they're in a working relationship or if they're in a shelter, what kind of attachments do they form to the people around them um, or do they form attachments to the people around them and how long does that take? Um, I've also been doing some work with animal-assisted therapy Mm -hmm. and looking at um, not only how the animal influences the the human's well-being and performance, but also how the animal's participation in therapy influences their own behavior, how well, um, you know, how it may benefit or um, put additional stressors on on their social behavior or their life. Um, So those are some of the things I study. And then probably um, from, from our discussions, the other types of things that I've studied in the past that I have continued on is looking at things like problem solving um, and how responsive animals, especially canines, are to human gestures, body language, um, and other forms of communication. Mm. So interesting. I think we could be here. We could be here for like four or five hours, I think, just talking. (laughs) I am available. Um, So anyway, um, so what's of particular interest to me um, and I attended Sparks last summer, and it was just awesome. It was so great to, you know, hear the talks and get to meet the a lot of the people that I talked with on the on the show and all that stuff. And and it's a really interesting sort of glimpse for me also into the culture of scientists and the language mm, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff too. And um, what is particularly interesting to me is that you're you're really relationship focused like you're talking about what kinds of attachment do dogs form with their owner or with the people around them um if if it's a working partnership or whatever and so are you when you say it like what do you mean by attachment do you mean emotional or how does that how do you like what does that mean to you so there are so many factors to attachment. What I'm specifically interested in at present um, is sort of how the animal uses their owner or the the person in their environment as sort of um, sort of a, a beacon in their environment to allow them to sort of reach out and explore. So can they use their owner as a secure base? So there's a level of trust there um, that allows the dog to exhibit maybe more confidence in certain situations that it wouldn't have um, if it had that that social figure present, um, or in other cases, maybe that relationship they have with the other individual inhibits behaviors um, that would be present, and so I'm looking at that in the context of problem solving. Mm. So I'm finding oftentimes mm. that dogs are more hesitant to problem solve, engage in independent problem solving um, in the presence of their human um, than they would be in other contexts, unless they're encouraged or something like that. Mm. However, they might be more inclined to um, feel comfortable in a novel situation. And so this sort of goes back to the older definitions of attachment relationship. Um, back when it was first studied with people, before a lot of the you know emotional considerations were even brought into it back then, mm-hmm. um, and between the relationship with um, young and their parents, in in a wide range of species. And so really when I'm looking at attachment currently, I'm I'm interested in that initial bond that forms between two species and then how it influences their behavior in the environment, either with respect to that person or their ability to um, engage in other behaviors that might be important to their lifestyle. Yeah. And I know from what I see working with dogs with behavior challenges is that it so depends on 
the quality of the relationship because one relationship (laughs) might lead an individual to feel more confident and one might have the opposite effect. And, you know, humans for sure are quite complex creatures. So we Mm -hmm. definitely, um, I mean, the sort of the stuff that we sort of put on our dogs unconsciously oftentimes too and how that impacts their behavior and their experience of the world and all that stuff is, I mean, there's just a lot to it. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's true. And and one of the other things with attachment is that there's whether or not an animal is attached, so do they have a bond? But then there are also, like you're saying, these different styles of owners. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we see different attachment styles in the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily that, you know, one owner is engaging in behaviors necessarily that are better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but they definitely do have different influences on the dog's reciprocal behavior. And so in some cases, um, an owner that loves their dog just as much as the next person may behave in slightly different ways that change, you know, the outcome for their dogs. And so I'm, I'm looking at things like the relationship of those different relationships that humans and dogs have on the likelihood of separation anxiety or the mm-hmm. likelihood of that dog. Um, being successful in other environments if it needs to be rehomed. So mm. you can use those prior experiences that are just inherently so different um, and ask what kind of effect is this having on not only the social behavior of dogs but also the individual behavior um, and how does that impact their, their success in different environments. Mm. And how, like, I know a little bit about attachment in people, like, you know, human to human, mm-hmm. and that in uh, in just that I know that there's sort of been defined some different sort of categories, no, not categories, but like this type of attachment versus this type of attachment versus this type. And it depends, it's sure. based off of the person's experience um, with their own parents. And I'm, I wonder mm-hmm. if, if you took, if you had all of the information about the humans who, who you, whose dogs you were, studying and i wonder if there would be any sort of correlation between the human's attachment style and how that translates you know i just came to me like um if there was any correlation between those two also like if you were... oh that's that's an interesting question i've had people ask me before about um children in the home and the dogs in the home whether their attachment mm. style towards the the owner was the same. I've never had anyone ask me about the the owner's attachment style to their parents. That would be fascinating. Um, but yeah, we're looking at exactly the same types of attachment styles. We've developed slightly a slightly modified procedure than even some of the ones that have been used in the past with dogs, so we could categorize it um, more like the way that you see in the human literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're finding that we can categorize dogs into pretty much the same exact attachment categories, as you said, as, as you can categorize humans into. Um, obviously, some of the fine-tuned behaviors, you know, are represented a little bit differently mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, dogs may lick, children probably, <laughs> hopefully would not, um, mm-hmm. but you can get these contact proximity-seeking behaviors, you can get exploratory behaviors, you can get play behaviors, um, and we're seeing dogs divide up into these groups pretty nicely. Hmm. Interesting. In different categories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk um, because your work is so social, um, you know, dogs and people and, and 
the, the how they interact together, and it just brings up so much to talk about. And I wanted to um, ask you some questions specifically about the um, the study that you did uh, several years back about with the pointing, because that was something that was talked about a bit last year at Sparks, and kind of brings up some questions for me. And it and it also brings up really a larger conversation about sort of the language of dogs versus the language of people and where those overlap and where they don't. So uh, we're going to be back in just a few minutes. We're talking with Dr. Monique Udell, who uh, works out of uh, Oregon State University and is the director of... Monique, what is the name of your um, uh, Human Animal Interactions Applied Animal Behavior... No, that's not it. What is the name? You have a name of your... uh, of your sure, uh, program, the Human Animal Interaction Lab um, is my group, and I'm I'm housed within the Department of Animal and Rangeland Sciences. Okay, so that Human Animal Interaction Lab. Yes. Okay, great. And I've posted links to Dr. Udell's sites and work, and to Sparks also. Um, Sparks is the Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science, and you can find them online at caninescience.info. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. This is an encore edition of The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Julie returns live next week with a brand new show. This year's 2015 Sparks Conference will be held in Phoenix, Arizona, June 19th through June 21st. And you can get more information by visiting sparksinitiative.org for this year's lineup and speakers and for more details about the event. If you can't attend in person, you can watch the whole Canine Science Conference streaming live from sparksinitiative.org. I love my dog as much as I love you but you may say my dog will always come through the natural pet pantry is seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs made locally using all u.s sourced ingredients their freshly ground stews raw or cooked can be purchased from their two stores in burian and kirkland most independent pet supply stores or delivered right to your door go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information i'm julie forbes and my first choice for my pet's food is the natural pet pantry it's the educated choice This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m. Thanks in part to Anti-Icky Poo, the product that gets the stink out, we cover the world of animals. This week, June 14th, it's a harmonic and energy-shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Ponton from Whispering Dragon in Seattle. They'll be back in the studio with their Accutonic Forks, Tibetan bowls and bells, puas and rattles, ready to do remote sessions for you, your animal friends, your home or business. Open phone lines throughout the show, so call in early. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Pure Air's powerful formula lets you eliminate pet odors safely. It's strong enough to effectively get rid of smells like urine, plus stronger odors like those that can be caused by illness. Pure Air is safe enough to spray directly onto people, animals, or use in the bath or laundry. Pure Air is perfect for dealing with dire situations, refreshing your dog between baths, or just before company comes. Pure Air is the most effective product you can buy to remove stinky pet odors safely. 
Find it at stores like Mud Bay, McClendon's, and Natural Pet Pantry, or visit their website, pureair.com. That's pure, A-Y-R-E, dot com. I'm Julie Forbes, host of The Dog Show. Pure Air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. You're listening to Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. And that he knows he'll get, so I love my dog. As much as I love you. you. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're back talking with Dr. Monique Udell, who is uh, with the Human-Animal Interaction Lab of Oregon State University. Um, Lots of research into kinds of different types of um, attachment. Uh, What types of attachment do dogs form with um, people? And how is that... um, how does that manifest and, and all sorts of really interesting stuff with the human animal relationship. Um, and Dr. Udell, I wanted to talk to you next about your, um, one of the studies that you did a few years ago, wolves outperform dogs in following human social cues, which has to do with pointing. And so like in, in a nutshell, so that we can move on. Um, you know, so the sort of studies were done on this, comparing uh, wolves' uh, reaction to, uh, like, their ability to sort of recognize that cue of somebody standing, facing forward, not using their eyes or other body language other than just their arm and and hand to just stand <laughs> staring forward and point to the side to a bucket and when the animal's eye or when they go to the bucket or follow that cue, then they get rewarded with a a treat gets dropped and then there's a click. Is that right, basically? Or am I missing? That, yeah, that's basically correct. And that's that's how a lot of the pointing tests work. There's there's not always a click. Sometimes the food's just dropped in this particular study there was, but really that um, it turns out is not important to the task. Basically, it's just, you know, you point to one of two objects. Um, if the dog or the wolf follows that point to the object that you chose, um, then it gets food. And if it goes to the other object, which is on the other side, um, then it gets nothing. Okay. And and does it have to, um, what do you, what is the, how is the response measured as a success or, or as a positive? Like the dog's eyes follow or they actually go up have, and eat the food? Or no, I'm sorry, go ha- go up and approach and get how close to? Yeah, so they have to either touch the can or get their muzzle within 10 centimeters of the can, which is um, in all practical terms so close that it looks like they're touching the can. Um, but you can't always be 100% sure unless the can wiggles. That that's what happens. So they either have to come um, within centimeters of the can um, or actually touch okay. it. And what was of interest to me was the the pre-training part of this. And was this was there a pre-training part of of these studies that were done before you also? Where- yes. Um, and and really pre-training is is an awful choice of term. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, pretty much all of the tests that came before used pre-training. Um, but really, it's not so much a training as it is just an exposure to the fact that food is available. So it involves typically just dropping the food onto the cans um, and showing them that there is food in this environment and that um, it can be found on cans. 
Um, and it sort of prepares them for the following experience of actually following the point. Okay. Um, because, you know, there, there needs to be some motivation to potentially pay attention. Um, okay. And that's the motivation. So the cans on either side are established both equally that they produce food. And then once that yeah. is introduced, then it's okay. When I point to that one, does the dog or wolf go to that one as opposed to the other one to say, hey, is that, does that mean that there's food? Now, are they in some sort of weight command or are they being held? How are they being kept a distance? Most of the time they're held. Um, in some studies, they, they can just get the animals to sit. In ours, we had someone distracting the wolves at a distance um, or distracting the dogs at a distance. So sort of you know, keeping a hand on them and, and maintaining their attention. And then and were so they the person was ready to point. Okay, and so were they let go of at the same time as the point happened? Um, basically the the experimenter issues the point. Mm-hmm. So in this particular pointing test, um, the point is given while the animal watches, but it returns back to a neutral point, meaning that um, the the human is no longer pointing at the can when the individual makes the choice. Got it. Um, and so in this particular study, I believe it was 2.5 meters. It varies by study. But um, the point was completely gone by the time um, the wolves or the dogs passed that line. Okay. So they had to make the choice after seeing the point, but it was from memory at, okay. that, at that instance. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now tell me, just in, you know, because... I'm not a scientist. I can understand this. I have some level of education in science, but mm-hmm. most people probably listening don't. Will you describe in just sort of, you know, a way that people would understand what's the point? Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. So um, the basic idea here is we want to see whether the dogs and wolves are really paying attention to what we're doing. So are they are they really aware that the human is over there, you know, making this point in the first place, and do then they reliably um, go to where that gesture indicated? So are they capable of using human actions or using cues um, to inform their behavior to their advantage in the environment? Okay. Um, and, and what this tells us is um, it's sort of, for me, it's a proxy of how often they may do this in their day-to-day lives, um, how have they learned that humans are a valuable source of information in their lives? Yeah. And so really the, the, the difference is studying how does that vary between wolves and dogs and the question of what role does domestication have in that? Partly, yes. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons for the comparison. But there are other things you can ask as well, like what kind of experiences make dogs more sensitive to human actions, you know, performing in agility or Mm. um, dogs that are, you know, involved in other tasks or in a lot of training that involves paying attention to people um, versus dogs that are maybe more engaged in independent tasks like search and rescue dogs um, or does breed have a role? Um, So you can ask a a number of questions, but one of the questions is um, initially was why are dogs good at this? Um, and could domestication be the answer? And that was the thing that we were we were testing in this particular study. Yeah. So I, I thought it was interesting. So is this the first first and only measure of this kind of thing as far as using the pointing? Are there um, other... In other... terms of gesture response? Yeah. Social cues? Yeah, no, there, there are so many ways to test social responsiveness. 
um, in animals. And so uh, we've looked at perspective taking, how sensitive animals are to whether or not we're looking at them or, or where we're looking in the environment. Um, you can test, like we talked about before, attachment behavior, just whether they're using the presence of an individual um, as a cue to explore the environment. So um, pointing is by no means the only measure of this, um, but it, it's become a popular one in part because um, now that it's picked up so much momentum, there are so many possibilities to compare between different groups of dogs or different breeds um, or different species that have been tested before with this really consistent methodology that's easily transferable across groups. Mm-hmm. I think the place where I get, and I've, you know, I've had um, just a, you know, been looking at your work for a few days and, you know, there's a lot I don't know about this. But what struck me is um, what does, what do we assume a point means to a dog? Because it's a, and I know the point is that it's a human social cue, but it's really not a social cue. Well, I guess, do you do you define a social cue as, hey, there's food, because I guess bees do mm. that. They dance to let everyone else know where they found food. So is it social? I guess to me, um, I was kind of feeling like this is the, the individual dog or wolf either figuring out or not how to get the food. But what did it really mean about mm-hmm. their relationship with, you know, like it, it was just kind of like about the food and them kind of following food. Not to say it's not valuable, but um, I was just sort of. I yeah. guess struck by that, and then also that there was, um, like, does a what does the a point mean to us? Just as an example, what does a point mean to us without without using eyes at all? Um, because dogs use their mouths like we use our hands, and so like mm-hmm. how how do they experience and read our body language as dogs or wolves or as canids versus? us humans and there's all these really awesome ways that people and dogs really just can communicate I don't know about wolves but where dogs get quality of energy like presence body language how does somebody Mm -hmm. feel does somebody feel confident or not they know the difference like all those you know and I'm not saying this related to a study it's just experiential Mm -hmm. so I was just curious about like the the point um, part of it and like oh my gosh I want (laughs) I want to be able to like you know, have all these studies done using all different types of cues and not using food and using, you know, like it just opens up, like basically just gets me spinning. Oh, yeah. No, it's wonderful. Years and years more of research are keeping me in work, so I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the the choice of a point really originated from the human and non-human primate literature because, like you say, pointing is so important to us as people, and it does um, play a big role, especially in our interactions with children and pre-verbal children. Um, some of the first ways that they can communicate once in their environment is being able to reach for things or point to things. Um, and so it's an, it plays an important role in our environment and in our development. Um, and so when it was sort of transferred over, Brian here was the first to use it with dogs. Um, and the reason why it became a topic of interest is because many species, um, at that time had not been found to be very good at following human points to locate things in space. Um, especially when you think of the species at the time that had been tested, many of them were lab-reared species, so they didn't have a lot of the same experiences that you would encounter in a home. And so it's not surprising that these cues didn't mean a whole lot to them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but for dogs, I mean, dogs live in homes with us. They they are watching us and they see us do all sorts of things, whether or not we're aware of it. Um, and just like we learn to pick up on subtle cues that are unique to dogs that we don't share with them, like their hackles going up or their tail going between their legs, they can sort of learn what that corresponds with in their environment and, and know something about what's going on or at least maybe um, to some extent maybe how they feel um, or that they're they're going to maybe respond in a particular way based on their cues. Um, and dogs have this ability too. They're really good at picking up on physical cues. Um, they use them with other dogs and so they have all this visual signaling. Um, and wolves also have all of this really rich visual signaling that they use with each other. And so I think it's not incredibly surprising that when you have dogs or wolves that have been raised around people and have bonded to people through socialization early in their life, um, that they can start to learn about what what our cues mean, what what we're doing, you know, when we when we drop something and, and go to reach for it, and if that thing might be a food item, um, dogs are pretty quick to figure out that somebody who is carrying food that's bending over and reaching in a particular direction is probably indicating where that food might be. Um, and most of our dogs would probably run over and try to snatch it before we got it, unless they're really well trained. Um, and so they, my interpretation is, is that they're, they're picking up on these same sorts of things in these pests, especially when it involves something like food or a toy, like a ball that you might throw, um, because they have lots of experience with us, you know, sticking our arm out and provisioning food or throwing treats in the direction of the arm necessarily predicts where that thing went. Um, and we also find that dogs and wolves are pretty good at following a pointing with the foot um, because probably for the same reason, when we kick their toys or kick their balls, um, the direction of our foot predicts where that thing went. So they may use those cues more than we realize in their home environment. But then you, you get to some of these other cues, like you're mentioning, these um, more subtle cues like, you know, maybe a slight head turn or, you know, pointing with your elbow is another one we've done that are sort of wacky cues that they wouldn't necessarily see in their environment as much or maybe these really small, subtle movements that don't mean as much to their day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're not as sensitive to those. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's sort of this combination of, um, yes, they have evolved to be around us to some extent, um, but on the other hand, if they're going to live in our environment, they may be using some of those tools that they already had in their belt from being these highly visual signalers, um, and yeah, they have to learn about these new body parts, uh, these new types of signals that they may not engage in, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a small, it may be just a smaller leap um, than we may have originally thought. Mm. Um, so it's sort of measuring um, how have they learned about how like our language as humans as a function True, of yeah. living with us and it's interesting mm-hmm. because if you think of a pointer like a german mm-hmm. short-haired pointer or whatever you know a dog and those dogs point and how what it, how what do their bodies look like when they point and what do they point with it's like their yeah. their heads so i'd be curious uh-huh. to know you know, numbers of trials that you did where the human pointed with their head versus with, so that would be the dog's language versus with our hand, which would be our language versus with mm-hmm. like our like butt or something or elbow maybe. <laughs> that would have yeah. like nothing, we would never do that. And like to mm-hmm. uh, compare the success with 
speaking the dog's language versus speaking our language versus just being weird and pointing with a body part that wouldn't, you know, that they wouldn't necessarily see. Yeah, and I I think it's important to keep in mind, too, that the way that they may signal something in their environment and the way that they see others in their environment signaling may be very different. Right. So, you know, you have this dog that, you know, maybe you have a pointer and, you know, when it, when it sees something, a stimulus moving in the environment, it, it you know, gets into this position. Um, so let's say there aren't any other pointers around in that household and that dog most of the time hangs out with people. What that dog is seeing is mostly our body language, you know? So there's this correspondence of do they need to be able to do it to be able to learn about it? Um, and, and so that's sort of the question. But it's, it's interesting. We've done all sorts of gestures, not just pointing. We've done you know, bending in the direction of, of the target, which is kind of similar to the, the mm. type of, you know, mm-hmm. sticking your head out that you'd imagine. We've been, you know, just looking at the container and, mm. and you get great variability. Different dogs are, are more or less sensitive to different types of gestures, which I think maybe even lends further to the idea that dogs are, are learning strategies for successful communication or successful interpretation of cues that are important to them and their environments and aren't necessarily all going to respond the same way to the same thing. Yeah. And that's, I think, an important point. And you you spoke to this in your discussion um, just about, you know, an, an individual's rather than it being like a purely a genetic difference based off of domestication that it might have. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that it has maybe more to do with the the individual's experience, upbringing, relationships you know, all of these other factors that play into it um, mm-hmm. um, rather than just the, the different... Oh, uh, su- our study suggests that environment and development affect a social animal's ability to react in situation-appropriate ways to the social cues of other individuals. I mean, we see that with humans. There's some humans that run around shooting, you know, that kill, yeah. kill people, and they're people. They're, you know, not genetically different uh, species-wise from, like, me. I would never do that. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, and there's just a lot of evidence for this variation. Um, and I think I think that's an example of our understanding evolving that, you know, science is sort of an ongoing changing process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these ideas are put out there, but then we have to test them and say, you know, does this hold true in every case? And now we're finding that wolves can be good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, can be very responsive to human gestures and actions and attentional state. They can seek out affection, um, but it depends on their upbringing. You know, if they're they're raised in a particular way where they're you know constantly being cuddled by humans and they stay around humans for their entire life, um, they're going to show more of these behaviors than you know if they were raised in a different way or maybe living in the wild. Um, we shouldn't necessarily expect them to act the same way. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing this with tons of other species. It's really been interesting over the last few years where we're seeing um, others socialize a, a range of animals, including crows and jackdaws, and, you know, they've looked at elephants, and mm-hmm. we've done bats, um, and animals that have been raised around humans and, and are also highly social are often good at these tasks. It's mm-hmm. not just dogs, and it's not even just canines. Um, you know, to see a bat follow a point is a pretty interesting <laughs> thing. Um, and their body language is incredibly different. Yeah. But if if those cues are valuable to them in their environment, it doesn't really matter if they do it. Um, but if they can get good things by paying attention to that in their environment, then they often do. Yeah. It's really interesting. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about what you'll be talking about at Sparks and just a little more about the other work that you do and and then um, just recap Sparks again. So Dr. Monique Udell is one of the presenters at uh, the second annual Sparks Conference. It's a gathering of world-renowned scientists uh, working with dogs and canids, so dogs and wolves, and, you know, just really about how they think, how they learn, their relationships, social aspects, all sorts of interesting stuff. There's a whole bunch of different presenters And we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. This is an encore edition of The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Julie returns live next week with a brand new show. This year's 2015 Sparks Conference will be held in Phoenix, Arizona, June 19th through June 21st. And you can get more information by visiting sparksinitiative.org for this year's lineup and speakers and for more details about the event. If you can't attend in person, you can watch the whole Canine Science Conference streaming live from sparksinitiative.org. Wish your dog didn't hate going to the vet? Wish you were welcomed by a team who cared? Jet City Animal Clinic is an enjoyable respite from the same old thing. Dr. Anderson and her team have created a full-service facility that combines veterinary expertise with a comfortable style. Jet City Animal Clinic is located in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood on 12th Avenue across from Seattle U. Bring your crazy questions, odd ideas, and alternative thinking. Jet City Animal Clinic will work with you to keep your furry family members healthy and happy. Traditionally educated with an open mind, call us at 206-329-0253 or email info at jetcityanimalclinic.com to make an appointment. Jet City Animal Clinic, a unique approach to the health care of your urban pet, a local family practice, jetcityanimalclinic.com. This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist and owner of Sensitive Dog, thoughtful guidance for you and your dog. If your dog needs basic obedience training, a behavior evaluation, or food consultation, I can help you. Call me at 206-372-7399 or visit my website, www.sensitivedog.com. I teach group obedience classes, in-home lessons, and evaluations, and a two-week intensive training program called Higher Education. Again, I'm Julie Forbes, Seattle's dog behavior training and nutrition specialist, www.sensitivedog.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair discusses issues that are important to you, like good health and well-being, finding a new job and building your business, overcoming life's big challenges and making sense out of chaos, and living with passion and joy. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific for Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. See conversationslive.net for show schedule and guest information. Hey, dog show fans. Does something stink in your home or car? Pure Air is a powerful odor eliminator that is the only natural food-grade product in its category. It works on bedding, kennels, litter boxes, urine, vomit, poop, even skunk spray. You know, all the fun smells our pets bring into our home. It's so non-toxic that you can literally eat it, a requirement for our home and our dogs. 
Spray pure air on anything you can put water on and let your nose watch the odor disappear. Ask for pure air in stores that specialize in natural, non-toxic products for home. Or visit dogradioshow.com for a link to their website. I'm Julie Forbes, your host of The Dog Show. Pure air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. Want to hear something different from talk radio? The choice is clear. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And um, we're back talking with Dr. Monique Udell, who's one of the featured speakers at this uh, second annual SPARKS conference. SPARKS is an acronym, Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. And it is a wonderful um, gathering of world-renowned scientists in the field of studying um, how dogs think, how dogs behave and interact with people, how that might differ from wolves, all sorts of different angles on it. Uh, it's really incredible. Last year was the first year that they did it, and um, it was just awesome. I was totally blown away. And um, definitely get in on this. If you can't go in person, you can watch it streaming live. Um, you can watch it archived. You can watch last year's. Go to caninescience.info for the website. So Dr. Udell is one of the speakers this year, uh, and you spoke last year as well. I did. And um, what will you be talking about this year, in a nutshell? So, in a nutshell, yeah. one of the things that people often remark about at not only conferences, conferences like this one, which is great because it brings together so many different perspectives and scientists from different areas, but just in general about science is that you hear all of these different things about how the brain regulates behavior or, you know, this behavior might be a product of learning and then someone else will say how it's a product of ethology or evolution or um, from all these different perspectives. And I often get asked or we often get asked, you know, which is right? Which should we use when we do, you know, engage in dog training? What should we pay attention to? And so my talk this year is going to be an attempt to demonstrate how actually all of these different fields of science are asking important questions that will come together to give us a bigger picture of sort of a universal truth. So we're all trying to get at, you know, the same truth about dogs or a better understanding of dogs, but just from different angles and different perspectives. And and there's going to be an experiment or experiential part of the story, and there's going to be an evolutionary part of the story and a biological part of the story. And it's just a matter of sort of, of bearing with us scientists as we hash out the details of, of where each of these fields can make the, the best contributions to this whole picture. Um, and so I'm going to try to help dog trainers and other uh, individuals in the applied setting make sense of, of these sometimes seemingly very different perspectives that they get from scientists and how they could, instead of you know, choosing between them, hopefully try to integrate them into to something that's even more powerful. Imagine that. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I think it's great that you're like, hey, it's not like one only, but that, <laughs> exactly. you know, <laughs> you get to pick one and that's all you get to work with for every dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thanks for like bringing voice to this because it's, it's, gosh, this kind of thing plays out all over the place where it's like, no, my thing, my thing, no, you know, and it's like, well, 
let's look at everything and, and be able to hold all of the information that we have each time we're presented with a new case and sort of mm-hmm. mix and match in a way that's going to best suit the individual that we're working with. For sure. And it's, it's a challenging thing to do because mm-hmm. it's one, it's not the way our society is set up most of the time. You know, we live in a very competitive society and, um, and just the portrayal of, of the way that science is done and, and, you know, the conclusions that are, you know, put out there, um, it looks like things are in conflict in some cases when they aren't. And sometimes, you know, the scientists that appear to be in conflict get along well and are actually really good friends and, yeah. um, and really agree with each other's work. And so sometimes there, there appears to be conflict where there isn't. Um, and then even where there doesn't appear to be conflict, sometimes it can be really hard to integrate information because, the language used in different sciences is so different. Um, yeah. So the you know the vocabulary used in a behavioral learning theory field is is incredibly different from one that's used in evolutionary psychology. I mean, the one term you know function. What is the function of behavior? Um, means dramatically different things across fields, and so a lot of the confusion comes from this inability to translate this information across not only the sciences, but then translate it to a whole other field of animal training or animal care. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the challenge. And it's not an easy one, but I agree it needs to be addressed. Something that just struck me that you said was appear where where there may appear to be conflict when there isn't. Mm -hmm. And something that I just thought I'd throw out there for you and hear what you have to say about it is that one of the things that's kind of refreshing, I think, about working with dogs is that there's either, if there's conflict, it's apparent. I mean, assuming mm-hmm. you know how to read subtleties in body language and hardening of eyes. I mean, it's not always obvious as far as like a full-on lunge and snap. But with dogs, it's like their experience is usually, if we're in conflict, we're in conflict in this moment. And then when it's over, we're not in conflict anymore. And it's mm-hmm. a difference between people who are very complicated when it comes to that kind of thing. And uh, would you, has it been your experience that with your work with dogs and wolves, like that there, have you ever felt like you've seen where there appeared or where there was conflict when there didn't appear to be? In terms of the work or in terms of the dog's behavior? Uh, In terms of the just dog's, in general, like that's something appearing to be in conflict. It's like they either are or aren't. So it's almost like something that uh, is specific to humans as opposed to dogs who are either are and are going to show it in that moment and I then see aren't. What you're you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, and it does sort of coming down then if, if you're using body language as the signal, for example. Right. Um, I think there are sometimes miscommunications, especially when you're talking about um, dogs with different socialization histories or maybe dogs of different breeds that have different physical features, where one dog is maybe trying to signal play and the other dog interprets that incorrectly and and conflict begins. So um, I think in some cases there might be a disjunct between what one individual perceives as conflict and what another individual perceives as play. But yeah, whether or not you know, does that conflict necessarily persist? Well, I don't know. To some extent, maybe it does, because I I think there's some evidence that um, once dogs, in some cases, form an impression 
of something or someone in their environment as a threat, which you could potentially interpret as conflict, that can persist. I know my dog, when she was a puppy, had a couple of dogs in the neighborhood that were just nasty to her. Yeah. And she's not forgotten that a year and a half yeah. later. She knows who those dogs are, yeah. even if she can smell them around the block. Yeah. So I still don't like you. Example. Yeah. Well, yeah. when I was, <laughs> right when I finished talking, I thought of my male cattle dog and he uh-huh. like there's we have a lot of dogs in and out of our house just like we have you know friends dogs who we watch or whatever for different reasons and there's you know some a couple dogs that he just isn't crazy about and mm-hmm. it's they come you know they come back and he's doesn't like them and still doesn't and he's fine like he's not going to get in you know get into a fight but he's going to you know do any damage or anything but he's going to definitely express his um displeasure with the presence of that animal (laughs) so it actually like i kind of felt like oh there is a little kind of ongoing drama that just is there i mean i don't whether he thinks about this dog when the dog's not there i doubt it but when he's back it's like yeah we're kind of still we're just always Mm -hmm. there's a general like conflict always just because you're here your presence is conflict. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess it's advantageous, you know, if, if you're, especially if you were, you know, fending for yourself, maybe not so much when you're being provisioned for by humans, but yeah. especially if you're fending for yourself, you know, you have to keep some sort of recollection of what might be a potential threat to you sure. in the future and, and to not let it escalate to the point where you could potentially become victimized. So, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, so you have a border collie. I do. And I was telling Dr. Udell about the Vashon sheepdog trials that happen every year in Seattle. Are you familiar with Vashon Island? Have you heard of it? I actually haven't. I'm still sort of new to the area, so okay. I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, it's just west of of the city. So it's we have a whole bunch of islands that are, you know, a lot of them are north and all that. Vashon is actually directly west of of Seattle and um, it's just a quick ferry ride from West Seattle and it's a great event and when you said you had a border collie it's like you need to check this out because it's so awesome to watch them doing their thing and uh, to experience the working relationship also between human and dog and to experience that communication and then also watch how the dogs so you know talk about inter 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 I don't know which one is right but between the dogs and the sheep and how the sheep mm-hmm. know if the dog is confident or not, and that the dog has to adjust. It's, I don't know. There's just a lot going on, and it's so cool to watch. Um, yeah, definitely. Where are you from? Originally, I'm from Florida. Okay. So I, I had lived there pretty much my whole life before moving out to Oregon. And how long have you been in Oregon? Uh, about a year and a half. Okay. So not too long. Well, yeah. Welcome to the Northwest. Thank you. <laughs> I, I enjoy the Northwest. It's a beautiful place, and... Um, it's definitely a very dog-friendly place. Lots of dogs. This is wonderful for me. Cool. So you'll be flying out to um, where I'm from. I'm from Massachusetts, so just south of there, to the Sparks Conference. And will you be presenting on all three days? I will be presenting on the Sunday. So okay. I believe that's June 22nd. Yeah. And have you um, met a lot of the other presenters this year or a lot of these people, will this be your first time meeting or how, how well do you know them? You know, I've, I've met a good number of them um, and those that I haven't met, I've, I've interacted with at one level or, or another. So I'm really excited for this year's conference, actually getting to see 
um, some people in the field that I really respect, and, and they're going to have really exciting talks, I can tell you already. And yeah. uh, others that, you know, I've been reading their work for years, and it's just really interesting from personality to um, applications for, you know, drugs and shelters to, you know, the biology of, you know, all sorts of stuff, olfaction and um, mm. vocalization. So it's, it's going to be really interesting this year. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I'm going to have to uh, participate from uh, from a distance this year, but um, but I'm still looking forward to it. So caninescience.info is the website again. You can go on and look at um, all of the different presenters um, that will be talking and the schedule. And um, some of them are back from last year. Um, Dr. Ray Coppinger was uh, presented last year Um Catherine Lord last year, Clive Wynn last year. I talked with um, Clive on the show last year too. Um, and then you, and then some new ones also. Yeah. So it's really, really mm-hmm. a cool thing. Um, so you do, um, you run, are you, uh, I think you said it said that you're an assistant, assistant professor also at Oregon State? I am. I'm, I'm an assistant professor in the Animal and Rangeland Sciences Department. And within that department, um, I... Uh, work with the human animal interaction lab by direct that lab cool so what is the part of all of this like what inspires you to do this work like what is it is there something that you're after do you even know you know like where you're doing all of these you know really formal studies and and Mm -hmm. and all that like what what is the motivation for you oh my first my first reaction is I should say something like I'm after the truth (laughs) <laughs> but, <laughs> and I guess I am in a sense, but I, I've always been fascinated by animal behavior. And, you know, for for as long as I can remember, I wanted to work with animals. And I, I just have a curiosity about, you know, how we coexist with animals, especially, and, and why they do the things they do and why we do the things that we do. Um, and especially if you think about dogs or even just urban animals that share this environment with us so closely, um, living in our houses, living in our communities and in our environments, and and the interactions that we have with them on a daily basis and, and haven't really thought about as deeply as we've studied some other species, because for a long time, the study of domesticated species, especially pets, um, was just not considered within the scientific realm. You know, mm-hmm. it was sort of not not well respected and I think that's changed a lot um, over the last few decades but especially over the last few years Mm -hmm. and so there's just so much to learn about these animals that we have such a close relationship with and I just want to know more and I want to share that knowledge with other people so we can um, keep building on those relationships and improving them. Yeah well we are out of time and uh, I've really, really enjoyed having you on the show and talking with you and learning about what you do. I think your work is so interesting, and I love the voice that you're bringing also to the community. And well, I look, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And I will look forward to hearing you talk in the Sparks Conference Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. Thanks again to Dr. Monique Udell for your time today. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. This year's 2015 Sparks Conference will be held in Phoenix, Arizona, June 19th through June 21st. And you can get more information by visiting sparksinitiative.org for this year's lineup and speakers and for more details about the event. If you can't attend in person, you can watch the whole Canine Science Conference streaming live from Sparks Initiative. Dot org.